The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Just a quick note before this week's episode begins. At the time we made these recordings, we were still all growing accustomed to group meetings via Zoom. And as a result, you'll notice some issues with sound quality and some background noise. I've tried to clean up the audio as much as possible, but without distracting from the comments and the discussion that was going on. In spite of any minor troubles along the way, I hope that you are as challenged and encouraged by Scott McKnight's King Jesus Gospel, as I have been. Now, here's our episode. All right, so I thought what we would do before we start uh, discussing our interactions and, and those kinds of things, I thought we would do a quick overview of the chapter. This chapter was a little bit longer than the, the previous chapters that we've read, um, because he's kind of going in depth in some some important issues. Um, so chapter four in the King Jesus Gospel is talking about what does the gospel look like in the writings of St. Paul. Um, so he begins by talking about, you know, because in, in the last chapter, at least, the, the discussion was about, well, what does, what, what do the different versions of gospel look like? Um, and and he, he said that usually people break it down into, in, into one of four areas, um, that, there's, that there's, the, or the, there's the story people uh, who either are talking about the story of Jesus or the story of Israel, and then there's the plan of salvation folks or the method of persuasion folks. Um, and his argument is, of course, that, neither, that, that none of those by themselves is the, uh, is the gospel. Um, so he's moving on to talk about what, what we find when when St. Paul uses that word gospel. What is he talking about? So his focus is on chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And in this section, he, he, he just spends a little bit of time looking at uh, this, this passage in, in chapter 15 and, and spending specific time talking about what does it look like when St. Paul is describing or cataloging the, the, the gospel itself. And so he comes back over and over again to, to this, this issue, that at the very beginning of this, what Paul says is, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And he points out that in the Greek, what he says is, I want to gospel that I gospel. I, the, the, the gospel that I gospel. That's, that's what the, the phrase means in Greek. I want to tell you about the gospel that I gospel. Um, and so, obviously, there's something in the way that we use the word gospel that has, has missed what that means. So, what is the gospel? Well, he moves on, and he, he, he essentially says that it is, it, it is this. He sort of 
skims down the, the, the essence. He reduces down the, the essence of what, uh, of what Paul is saying in chapter 15. He says that Christ, was that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared again. That this is the gospel that he, that, that Paul is gospeling. Okay, so he says, that I'm at the bottom of page 49 here. Uh, he says that the word gospel was used in the world of the Jews at the time of the apostles to announce something, to declare something as good news. The word evangelion, euangelion, means good news. To gospel is to herald or to proclaim or to declare something about something. To put it together, the gospel, and I'm at the top of page 50 now, is to announce good news about the key events in the life of Jesus. To gospel was to announce, declare, tell, and shout aloud the story of Jesus Christ. All right? So what he says is that salvation flows from that gospel. So the, the, the gospel is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a little bit of discussion about like what, what versions of the the salvation story we have you guys are familiar i think probably with um with atonement theories there are lots of different ways that people talk about how the atonement happened and the point basically that he makes is that he doesn't paul doesn't describe how it happened he just says that it happened and he uses lots and lots of different metaphors to describe that it happened uh and and then he kind of moves on so he says the point of this is that we're trying to get to a complete story now i'm on page 53 the, the story of Jesus is a complete story that it's not just a Good Friday story. It is about the death, but it's also about Jesus's burial and his resurrection and his appearances. It can, the, the story of Jesus continues on. It's not just about that he died and now everything's okay. It's that he died and was buried and is raised and has ascended to God's right hand and intercedes for us and is coming to, to rule again. All of that together is the gospel. All of that, there's not one part of that that is more gospel than the rest of it. All of that is the good news of Jesus Christ. So over on page 55, he then talks about that Jesus, the, the, who is the, the person at the core of the story, that the story of Jesus is, uh, of Jesus Christ is about Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah means anointed king. It means the Lord, the ruler. So the, the point of the story is, as, as you imagine from the, you know, from the title of the book, it's the King Jesus gospel. The idea that Jesus is king is the gospel itself. That's, that, that's good news. He becomes king through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Uh, but the, the, the good news is that Jesus is king. So what I, what, what I wanted to focus on for, for this sort of quick overview is this passage on 57 and 58 where he looks at, at the writings of N.T. Wright. <clears throat> this is sort of the centerpiece of the chapter. Um, now, he is talking about a, a book that, that Tom Wright wrote called What St. Paul Really Said, um, and which, which talks about this word gospel when it shows up in Paul's writings. So he says on page 57, qu quoting Tom Wright, Many Christians today, when reading the New Testament, never question what the word gospel means, but assume that 
since they know from their own context what they mean by the gospel, Paul and others must have meant the exact same thing. And then he points out what we typically mean when we use that word gospel. That a gospel is a description of how people get saved, the, the theological mechanisms, uh, the, the people's language, other people's language, the languages, again, uh, where we talk about our sin and Christ taking our sin onto himself, and then we commit our life to him. So it, it all depends on our language. And so Tommy says, goes on and says, if you hear a sermon in which the claims of Jesus as Lord are related to the political or ecological question of the day, some people will say, perhaps the, perhaps the subject was interesting, but the gospel wasn't preached. And, and at the top of 58, he says, this is, this is again N.T. Wright says, I'm perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it's what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, to preach about, to believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. And that, of course, is the whole point of this book, that these other things that we talk about, this plan of salvation, all that, that's not the gospel. That may be a part of the gospel, and it may be something that is very important for us to talk about. We ought to talk about sin. We ought to talk about the effects of sin. We ought to talk about uh, our own individual salvation. We ought to talk about the, the effects of our salvation in our lives and in our families and our homes and our communities. All of those things are parts of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is something that's much larger than that. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is now king. It's the King Jesus gospel. There's a quote that he had that I, I just thought was absolutely fantastic. This is at the very end of the chapter. So I'm on page 62 at the end of that first paragraph. He says, when we separate the plan of salvation from the story, we cut ourselves off from the story that identifies us and tells us our past and our future. He's talking here, of course, not just about the, the, the story in the Gospels about Jesus, but the connection between the Gospels and the Old Testament, this entire salvation history where God is constantly calling creation to himself, that he's at work rebuilding and restoring his creation, that that is a part of what it means that Jesus is now Lord. But it says when we cut ourselves off from that story, we cut ourselves off from the story that identifies us and tells us our past and tells us our future. We separate ourselves from Jesus and turn the Christian faith into a system of salvation. So it has taken four-ish chapters now, but he has finally told us what the gospel is. He spent a lot of time telling us what it's not, but finally he says to us what the gospel is. So what are you guys' thoughts? What are some of our, some of our reflections? We finally have a definition from Scott McKnight about what the gospel is and what it does. What was something that, uh, that, that you learned? What was something that you encountered that you hadn't, um, you know, that, that you hadn't thought about in that way before? Or maybe just there was a passage or a quote that really stuck with you that you really liked. I really like that he was like Paul talking about how he got his gospel in a completely different way, but still gives the apostles idea of the gospel, the apostles definition of the gospel saying, yeah, I, I could tell you about, you know, my special gospel experience, but here's the tried and true one that we all know. Yeah, I, um, I spent time and went back to first Corinthians 15 because I was, 
you know, I felt like he didn't spend quite as much time kind of delving into it as I wanted, um, which is fine. I mean, he's he's writing a book. He ain't got three chapters to exegete <laughs> all of First Corinthians 15. Um, and I would have glazed over in the middle of it anyway. Um, but one of the things that jumped out to me, you know, having read the chapter and then going back to First Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. um, connects with... I don't know, where he talked about, you know, the gospel not being a Good Friday story. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really what Paul is talking about in chapter 15 is first and foremost the resurrection. Right. Um, And and it really, you know, we talk a lot about being Easter people and about, you know, there's... um, you know, a lot of those things, and, you know, Jesus isn't Lord because, even necessarily because he's the son of the father, he's the Lord because he defeated death um, Mm -hmm. for himself and for me, Mm -hmm. um, and for you, and for, you know, all of, all of creation, Um, and so that, to me, was a really good like, I'm really glad I did that because it's probably just that I glazed over where he said that briefly. He assumed I knew and was paying attention. Um, but that that was a really important part, you know, of the story that really helped me um, kind of latch on to what he was saying and, um, you know, really buy in. Mm-hmm. That he is saving a community, but that he's also saving the people who make up the community. That it's both of those things tied together. It can't be just that the gospel is about me and my personal salvation, but it can't also be only a story about what Christ is doing for his church. And there's no, there's no connection between, between myself because then then me saying Jesus is Lord is not a personal declaration, and it needs to be a personal declaration. It needs to be something that's happening in me. It's something that, that, that I believe, and it changes who I am as a person, not just who we are as a community. Um, obviously, it changes who we are as a community, but it ought to change who I am also. Um, and so there needs to be a personal dynamic as well as, um, as, well as a corporate dynamic, like you point out there. One thing that I, I got curious about, um, this is sort of piggybacking on what Jeremiah pointed out, is um, the way that we use um, music to tell stories, especially in, in, a, in a Christian environment. So I was like, well, I wonder, you know, he, he, he goes to, to, to great lengths here to, to talk about this idea of, of a Good Friday story versus versus a, a, a King Jesus story. And I was like, well, I wonder what the Good Friday element is versus the, the Easter element in the hymnal that we use. So I, so, I, so I looked it up. Now, there are Good Friday and Easter themes spread through lots and lots of hymns. So I'm only focusing on like the way that the hymnal is broken down. But in our hymnal, there are 23 hymns that are devoted just to Good Friday and 11 hymns that are devoted to Easter. Um, the 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 89 Methodist hymnal is a little bit is is a little bit more even. They have 19 Good Friday hymns and 20 Easter hymns. 
Now, what I thought, I, I was like, well, maybe this is just a, you know, and so I was like, maybe this is just an evangelical thing. So, so I got out the, the, the 1984 Episcopal hymnal. The Episcopal hymnal has 15 hymns for Good Friday and 39 hymns for Easter. And I think only six of those 39 are musical set, like sometimes in the hymnal, they have musical settings for like refrains and antiphons during the, during the service. But I think only six of those were refrains or antiphons and the rest of those are just hymns that they have for Easter. Um, it's one of those, you know, literally putting, putting our money where our mouth is kinds of a, kinds of a thing. Uh, we spend so much time, especially as evangelicals, uh, you know, as soterians, I think is, is the, the term that Scott McKnight uses, uh, focusing on, on the, the Good Friday story that we lose the fact that that's only a part and a portion of what the, the larger story is supposed to be. N.T. Wright has pointed that out in more than one place uh, that, that, I, that I've read from him where he talks about, you know, we spend lots and lots of time on the, on, on the lead up, you know, dur during the Holy Week celebration. And then it's like Easter shows up and we don't do anything. Just like that's, that, that's it. Easter's done. Instead of, you know, instead of using that as a celebration, um, you know, some of that is because everybody who's doing the services is just done at, at the end of, you know, an entire week. We're like, you know what, we're not going to have a, an entire another week of just things that we're doing. Um, but, uh, but, but I think both of them in their own way have a point, right? That, that we, we spend, uh, you know, a lot of our time and a lot of our energy telling one part of the story rather than embracing the entirety of the narrative. You know, I wasn't, I, I had never encountered people who ever talked about Holy Saturday or the Easter Vigil. The Easter Vigil is the one thing that kept coming to my mind in this chapter because, of course, in the Easter Vigil, we literally start at the beginning of the story and we just walk point by point through the entire history of God at work saving his people until we get to the story, uh, you know, to the, to, to the main story. Uh, and so that was sort of the, the image that kept coming into my mind is, is the way, but I had never encountered an Easter vigil until, uh, until I started attending an Anglican service. And not all Anglicans observe an Easter vigil. There are lots of Anglicans that, uh, that, that don't do that because it wasn't in one of the, one of the, some of the older prayer books didn't have that as part of their, their service. And so there are lots of Anglicans that still don't do that. You have to go to either a, a Roman church or a, or an Orthodox church to find that. Was there anything that as you were reading, you found uh, your own beliefs or assumptions being challenged? Anything that challenged the way that you thought about uh, especially about the gospel in Paul, but it could be larger than just the gospel in Paul. I'm not sure if it exactly challenged uh, belief as much as it just emphasized something uh, in the middle of page 58 when he's quoting um, that the gospel, the first century context, context was an announcement to announce that Yahweh was king, was to announce that Caesar is not. Mm -hmm. And and sort of the, what struck me is how um, it's it's very much in opposition to what your political or your current king is. You're you're establishing no, Christ is king, Jesus is king, and I thought sort of a powerful thing to think about in terms of sort of the politics of election that we're going through now. Yeah. Um, it, it just sort of struck that sort of just jumped out at me 
um, that it's not just that he's king. It's that our current king is not king. And I, you know, I don't mm -hmm. mean that in particular, just wherever you're living, whatever country you're in, Caesar mm -hmm. is not. And so the emphasis there was, was interesting to me and, and uh, thought provoking. Yeah, I, I love the quote that he has in the 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 next chapter, or the, not the next chapter, in the next paragraph uh, at at the bottom, where he where he he you know is explicitly outlining what the gospel is, and he, he he says right there that it's the narrative proclamation of King Jesus, or to put it more compactly, Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is Lord. Just that. That's that's the gospel. There's something too, and he doesn't really get into it here because I don't think that N.T. Wright really gets into it here. He talks a little bit in, let's see, this is on page 51 where he's talking at the bottom of 51 where he's talking about the, the, the ways that we talk about salvation. We call those atonement theories, um, but he talks about them as Jesus died with us, Jesus died instead of us, and Jesus died for us. So he's saying all of those things uh, you know, are, are happening together. Um, but something that connects to that is what N.T., he says at the bottom of that N.T. Wright quote on page 58, um, this is the italicized section, the gospel is for Paul at its very heart an announcement about the true God as opposed to the false gods. Um, and N.T. Wright, in, in a, a, a book that came out, this is a couple of years ago, um, was talking about uh, about sin in that particular way, and that 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 idea I think com continues to to challenge me to like stretch my imagination, um, because he talks about sin in in terms of sin being idolatry. That at its core, sin is always idolatry. It's always us giving the um, the authority that we have been given or the worship that we're supposed to be giving over to something that's, that, that, that's not God. <clears throat> so we're either, we've, we, we either are giving worship to something that's not God, or we're taking the authority that God gave to us and we're handing it over to, to inhuman powers. Uh, however we want to identify them, right? Right doesn't, you know, doesn't point out one kind of power, but we do that with, it could, we, we, he, he, he always talks about uh, drugs and sex and money, uh, that those are like the, you know, the three perennial gods that we're always just, you know, handing our worship and, and handing our authority over to, um, you know, what, whatever, what, whatever that looks like in our particular age and particular culture. Um, but this idea that like at its core, that, that sin is that. And when, when, you, when you categorize sin as that, instead of saying sin is all of the bad stuff that I've ever done, when you, when you put it down, you say all of the bad stuff that I've ever done looks this particular way. It looks like me giving worship and, and authority over to something other than God. It helps me to, to identify why brokenness continues to happen in my life. Does that make sense? Because so often when, when sin is about like, you know, you need to stop, uh, you know, stop using bad words, or you need to stop smoking, or you need to stop, uh, you know, dating all of those people, or you need to stop going to those movies, or stop, you know, whatever thing it is that we're supposed to stop doing. It's always couched in terms of what you're doing, um, you know, makes Jesus sad, or what you're doing interrupts your relationship with God. 
i.e. makes Jesus sad, or what you're doing is impairing your relationship with other people, i.e. makes Jesus sad. Ultimately, it's all about like, did you make Jesus sad? You should stop making Jesus sad. And it, it, there's no, uh, for me, there's no rhetorical power in somebody saying, you know, G, you, you know, Lee, you should stop making Jesus sad. I'm like, well, I guess that's true, but it, it's so saccharine that I can't take it seriously. But when somebody like N.T. Wright says, Lee, you need to stop worshiping idols. You need to stop worshiping demons. You need to stop giving the, the authority that God gave to you over to demonic entities. That catches me where I'm, where, where I'm standing, right? Like that pushes me in a way where I say, okay, I need to reevaluate some of my own choices and some of my own, some of my own allegiances, right? This, this comes back to this idea of Jesus being king, uh, that maybe there are some, some places in my own heart and my own life where I've given my allegiance over to something that's not King Jesus, uh, where I've, I've allowed something else in, in my life or in my uh, family or in my community to be Lord other than Jesus. Um, and then, you know, we then see the brokenness that flows out of that. So what else? Were, were there other places where you felt like you, your, your own assumptions or beliefs were, were challenged? Um, I have something a little bit tied to that. Um, he talks about, um, on page 50, about how the gospel is the resolution of Israel's story. Uh -huh. um, and while I was thinking about it, um, you know, I... I'm an Old Testament lover. Like, I love the stories of the Old Testament, even the ugly ones. You know, I read it more than I read Paul. I'm a weirdo like that. Um, but um, it really kind of brought home that, you know, if, if the gospel story is the good news that is the resolution of Israel's story, then... It, it it always has been like a separate thing. Like there's Israel so long ago and then there's me today. Mm -hmm. But the moment that I start to read Israel's story as if it's my own story and, and see myself in the parts of the story, um, you know, that that's, when I see the brokenness in Israel connected to the brokenness in me, then the resurrection tells a, a different, more personal story. Mm -hmm. But it's a really hard, it's a really hard road to hoe, as they say, road to hoe. I, I believe that's the, the phrase, one of the good country phrases. Um, you know, when we're this far separated from from the culture of Israel, from, you know, the way they thought in Israel, from the language, from, you know, there's so many pieces that are separate that have to be broken down. And I think what you talked about is, um, you know, that's another, another piece of that picture for me is, you know, that idolatry piece, because they talk about a lot in the Old Testament but it needs to be reframed a little bit for us today to understand some of that better. Um, so mine was kind of connected to yours, but just overall, just the ability um, to understand ourselves as Israel. Yeah. And if we do to understand what it is that God did 
for realsies in the resurrection. Yeah, the uh, the N.T. Wright book that that I read, the, the one that came out more recently was called The Day the Revolution Began. Um, it's a super awesome book. It's a little bit more academic than than this book, but it might be, if, if we're interested, it might be a book that would be worth diving into, um, you know, maybe maybe as part of our spring reading re reading list, uh, we could be in, you know, working through that as we're going through uh, through Epiphany and Lent and, and, and probably into Easter season um, in, in the spring. Um, it might be something, if, if we're interested, like I said, it's a little bit more academic, so, you know, it, it requires a little bit more commitment than, than the, the McKnight book does, but it's a, it's a thought at least. Um, anybody else? Other, other, other places where you felt like you were, you were challenged, made you think outside of your box? I think for me, maybe, um, maybe I've been Anglican now for long enough where the, the story of the Christian year, and we celebrate, you know, all of the parts of Jesus's life, death and resurrection and ascension, um, maybe I'm just used to it now, but for me, um, it was kind of hard to imagine that, you know, there are parts of um, Christian communities that stop at at the Good Friday. And I, it's just, it was hard for me to get my head around that and understand, like, what benefit that would have to their how they live their Christian lives out. So mm -hmm. I don't, it was just like I said, kind of confusing to me that people stop there. And I guess when I think about it, obviously that's true um, for some certain denominations or whatever, but yeah, I think that was just kind of. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think that the, the quote that I read from page 62 is still just a, just a gut check. Um, at, at, I mean, that whole first paragraph on that page is, is that. Um, he says that this leads to a warning. It's one that animates most of this book. The plan of salvation can be preached apart from the story, and it has been done, it has been done for 500, year, 500 years and 2,000 years. When the plan gets separated from the story, the plan almost always becomes abstract, propositional, logical, rational, philosophical, and most importantly, de-storified and um, unbiblical. When we separate the plan of salvation from the story, we cut ourselves off from the story that identifies us and tells us our past and tells us our future. We separate ourselves from Jesus and turn the Christian faith into a system of salvation. Um, I know that for me, that was what it felt like growing up in a Soterian uh, congregation. Um, that that salvation was what was a system, and you got in and you stayed in, and then the goal of the Christian life was just to get other people in. You had to you had to you, you had to to sell the story uh, in in a particular. It felt like it felt like you know when when you've got that one friend that's always trying to get everybody into the pyramid schemes. Like, but dude, if you would just you know if you would just like listen to my li listen to my my cell just. Uh, let me tell you all of these things. Let me just listen to my sales pitch and you'll just, you'll buy in and you'll be a part of it. Like it always comes across that way. It becomes but uh, yeah, I, I was just, I, I was just so, oh, it was a gut punch, right? It turns the Christian faith into a system of salvation. I'm like, that's, I, I, 
I, I, I used to live in that, that idea of Christianity just being a system of salvation. We wouldn't say it that way. Uh, you, we wouldn't talk about it that way. We would always say that it's all about relationship. You know, it's, it, it's not religion, it's relationship and all of those things. But the, but the reality of it was just that it was a system and, and your goal, like we would go to entire conferences where the whole goal was to learn how to sell the system correctly. Uh, you know, you learn how to tell the story in this particular way and, uh, and, and it'll convince everybody because it's relational and it's, uh, it, it's, it's logical and it's philosophical and it should just make sense to anybody, right? But it doesn't because it's, it, it's, not, it, it's not the gospel. It's just another, a, another system and another sales pitch in a world that's already filled to overflowing with systems and sale pitches. I really liked his use of that word destoried in that section. I think that really was helpful, uh, like a helpful concept for me to think of it in that way. I agree, Jenny. I really, I really like that. And something that what in what Lee was talking about that has also jumped out at me thinking, because Jenny, you and I both grew up United Methodist. We didn't grow up in churches that were only Good Friday salvation oriented. But how many times were you told that the reason your church didn't grow was because you didn't have an altar call at the end of the service or because you didn't do this thing to sell the gospel or you didn't do that thing to sell the gospel? Um, like that's kind of the message that we got. And, and I, you know, I think it's a strength of many mainline denominations and my assumption would be that many of the people who are Anglican are like this too because they used to be Episcopalian but the problem is and you know and I don't I'm hoping that in somewhere in here I get a better clearer picture but um but you know it's not like the mainline denominations were coming up with, well, the actual way to do it is to restorify, um, to, to tell these stories better. It wasn't to really understand salvation better. And so you kind of, I've always felt like, I know this isn't the answer, but the other answer I have isn't a whole lot better. It, it's like voting in our election. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, you know, all, most people have one side that they really hate and one side that they're like, well, I guess maybe it's better than the other. And I feel like we've kind of done that with salvation. But I, but I feel like with the gospel, there's a real true like answer in there that's better. And hopefully we are discovering that together. Yeah, he definitely is going to address some of that later on. Um, the, the last chapter in the book that we have is it creating the gospel? I think it's creating the gospel culture. Now, there may be one a little bit farther along that I'm thinking of. Anyway, he, he talks about in, in this, like, as, as he goes along, what it looks like to sort of grow into this storying, this, this storying world. So what does it look like for us to gospel today? And then what does it look like for us to create a gospel culture? How do we sketch that out in a way that makes sense? How do we live that out in a way that makes sense? How do we, how do we put the story of, of Jesus at the center of our community so that we're constantly gospeling, that every time that we get together, we're gospeling? Um, obviously, I mean, you know, McKnight is an Anglican now, so 
I, I feel like he kind of, you know, landed in a place where he's like, this is the way that I can most authentically uh, live out this, this gospel story, uh, you know, every, every week of, of the year for the entire year long, year after year, we tell this same story in the same way over and over again, uh, and, and begin to live into the story. That's, that, you know, is um, probably like for, for many of us who became Anglican, that was one of the things that, that, that drew me in. Um, was was this idea of being drawn into the story. Um, but I think what Jeremiah points out is, is, is also important. Are there other questions that you guys have kind of moving forward? Did this, did, did this stir anything up where you're like, okay, that's, that's interesting, but I want to hear more about, what was it? Sorry, the Roomba is in the, is in the sanctuary cleaning and it's trying to find its base. And it sounds like a haunted soul screeching, like as it wanders around, just running around. I'm like, what is going on? Somebody tore the internet out of the wall. Now there's a ghost in the sanctuary. I just, I'm done with this week. It's only Wednesday and I'm done already. <laughs> oh, it's just those creepy little mechanical wheels. That's all that it is. Yeah, so questions or things that you're like, I want to hear more about this. Um, I'm curious if you know because I, I don't think that we're going to, I don't think this book is going to cover it and I wouldn't necessarily expect it to. Mm -hmm. Maybe it does later. Um, but is there a more comprehensive um, exploration of, you know, reading Paul in, in these ways? Do I just, do I just go to the N.T. Wright book? Yeah, uh, right. And there's another... There's another guy who who has has done some fantastic stuff on Paul. Um, is his name Gorman, Michael Gorman. I just know that Paul is something that I need some help with because I I don't particularly like Paul, but I think that I've just been told that Paul is saying things that mm -hmm. Paul isn't saying. Mm. <laughs> right, which definitely happens often. I don't know if this is the book that you're talking about, Lee, but Michael Gorman, he um, he wrote a book, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, A Theological Introduction to Paul. I read in my undergraduate, and mm -hmm. I feel like he tracks along this same line. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that he and N.T. Wright track together a lot. I, I think they, they co-wrote a book together recently or something. Um, so I know that they, they kind of, I mean, they're not, they're, they're not identical. You know, they, they come from very different cultures. One, one's from the Midwest U.S. and the others, you know, from, from the U.K. So like their, their, their approaches are different. They come from different theological backgrounds. Um, but I think their, their, their direction moving forward is very similar. So, um, so either of those books might be, might be a good introduction. And it's possible that McKnight has got other works where he focuses more heavily on Paul. I just don't, um, I just don't know. I think this might be the first book by McKnight that I've read. I know he's not going to delve into that a, a lot in this. He's going to talk about what does the gospel look like in the gospels and what does the gospel look like in St. Peter. So he's going to spend a lot of time trying to, trying to reevaluate what does it mean in in an apostolic way in the apostolic age what did what did gospeling mean and what did it look like so what did it look like in paul and in peter and in the gospel writers um and then and then trying to say well what then could it look like for us 
All right, so um, let's see, the next chapter will be chapter five. We'll be meeting on the 28th um, to, to cover chapter five together. So what, what he's gonna be talking about here is over the next two chapters, he's gonna talk about where does this idea of, where, where does this soterian reading of, the, of, of scripture come from? Um, so he's gonna start at the very beginning and sort of track from, from Paul to Nicaea to the to 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 and through the middle the 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 Middle Ages, and then he's going to jump into well, what about revivalism? Does the gospel look like this because of revivalism? Because you know revivalism is is it's a it, it's a weird thing. It only happened uh, I, really. It only happened in the U.S. Uh, a little bit in in the U.K., but not very much, uh, and it produced a very unique way of doing theology. So maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, so he's going to, the next two chapters are going to cover some of the, the, the history about why and, and how we, we got to the, the kind of readings that we have today. So let's, uh, let, let's close in prayer. How about that? Lord Jesus, stay with us for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in scripture and in the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.